Hello, thanks for being here. It's good to see you all. Uh, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk a bit about side projects and side research and the things I'm doing in the wee hours of the morning. So yeah, welcome. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, Professor Brennan Allen. So I teach um, a number of writing classes. I teach a humanities course currently on narrative. I'm also teaching a creative writing workshop, which I recognize a few folks with. Hello, hello in the back, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been working and writing as a poet for about 10-ish years or so. Um, and so for me, I see my, my inquiry and my academic practice as also being tied to my creative practice as a poet as well. So a lot of times when I come up with some sort of problem or a question I'm trying to untangle, uh, I think about it a whole lot and instead of writing a huge paper on it, I write like a single poem or something. Um, and so this is kind of, uh, think of this talk sort of as a mixture, I suppose, between me kind of working through some of the theoretical concerns I'm interested in with intersections between technology and, and literature, but also kind of an artist talk, because I'm going to talk through how these things uh, are relating to and informing the project Melissa mentioned in my introduction, um, CentoQuest, which is this poetry video game that I'm kind of still working on, I'm always working on, um, which I'll show you some towards the end of the presentation. Um, and this comes from, while I've been writing for a long time, I also have a very long-standing history with video games. I was given a Super Nintendo when I was two years old, which came out in the United States uh, on my birthday. Um, so I was born at the same time as the Super Nintendo. Um, yeah, and so first off, uh, we kind of have to start really early on with uh, hypertext and hyperlinks and what they are. Um, who here would say were they're familiar with these terms, hypertext and hyperlinks? Okay, so this is, uh, these are more formal terms. When we talk about links, when you click on a link, you're clicking on a hyperlink. Um, and hypertext is basically a kind of text that is inundated with hyperlinks. And hyperlinks, we see, I think Wikipedia is a great example of how they function. When you go to Wikipedia, all of these blue highlighted words that you can click on to follow and learn more about something, that is a hyperlink. So rather than opening the book of Wikipedia and flipping to the H's and then flipping to the hypertext page, you can just go to the hypertext page and when you want to learn more about the internet, you can click on the internet and you can go right there, right? This is uh, as a pretty, we're inundated this in the digital world, right? But there was one point in time where this was uh, revolutionary. But the interesting thing with hypertext and what really made a lot of experimental authors and poets really excited in the 90s is that if you think about how we navigate information and language before the link, it's really, really linear, right? That's the joke I'm making about navigating to the H's. You navigate, those of you who are in Professor Mayus's class navigating the OED, right? You are flipping through a ton, a ton of paper to get to where you're going, right? Um, and so basically what this allows us to do is to start to uh, create our own pathways through information. Um, which we can also get really lost in, right? So say, for example, you're on Wikipedia looking up the uh, illustrious filmography of the actor Kevin Bacon, 
and you're like, oh, he was in Apollo 13. I haven't seen that movie. What's that about? So you click on Apollo 13, and it takes you to the Apollo 13 Wikipedia page, and you're like, okay, da-da-da-da. Oh, they used an actual reduced gravity aircraft? What is that? And you click on that. And then you learn all about the reduced gravity aircraft, and they call it a vomit comet. And you're like, suddenly, it's been two hours, you haven't written your paper, you have no idea how you got here, um, and you're in the Wikipedia hole, which I end up in um, all the time. Uh, and so this act of getting lost in these pathways, I think, is really pertinent to uh, a text that a lot of people who are writing literature in hypertext uh, think of as a big inspiration for this, which is this short story by Jorge Luis Borges from 1941, The Garden of Forking Paths. So if you've ever read Borges, famously hard to summarize any one of his stories, but the, the nutshell is that our protagonist learns about a book written by one of his ancestors that is simultaneously a book and a labyrinth. And it's a little bit fantastical, but basically what this means is uh, as he writes that, in typical fictional works, each time a man is confronted with several alternatives, he chooses one and eliminates the others. So think, for example, you're reading a book and your protagonist decides to go home. Well, the protagonist goes home and doesn't go to all the other things that exist in that book, right? But in the fiction of Sui Pen, who is the, the fictional author who is writing this labyrinthian book, he chooses simultaneously all of them. He creates in this way diverse futures, diverse times which themselves also proliferate and fork. So in the work of Sweet Pen, all possible outcomes occur. Each one is the departure for other forkings. So this is a little bit outside the bounds of reality, right? When you open a physical book, there's a page that comes after a page that comes after a page. And you can rip up that, that book and rearrange the things, but there's still a progression that happens, right? Um, but this fictional concept, or this hypothetical concept of all of these branching paths that themselves are branching paths, if you've watched a Marvel movie in the last five years, you are familiar with this concept. The multiverse is everywhere. Uh, there are a hundred different Spider-Men, and they're all fighting a hundred different Venoms, and et cetera, et cetera, and so on. But before Marvel, you know, there were plenty of other examples of this, such as Choose Your Own Adventure Stories, if you're familiar with these, which they are still making, I learned, from ChooseCo, limited liability company. You can get your new Journey Under the Sea stories. But if you're unfamiliar with these books, basically uh, it was organized. Uh, each page told a section of a story, but rather than turning linearly through that, when you got to the end of the page, like you see on the second page right there, it gives you options. So Journey Under the Sea, you are following this narrative of a kind of deep dive submarine, right? And uh, as you can see on this page, if you choose to decide, if you decide to explore the ledge where the seeker has come to rest, turn to page six. If you decide to cut loose from the moray and dive with the seeker into the canyon in the ocean floor, turn to page four. And on page six and on page four, they often also have more diverging choices, and you end up somewhere where hopefully you come back up for air, or perhaps you fall to a watery grave, or you meet a mermaid or something. You know, these things diverge. 
But it's interesting when these books came out, because they all had this introduction here that starts, beware and warning, this book is different from all other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. Um, which is kind of a lie, right? If you think about it, you're in charge up until the point that the words that are written in this book stop, right? You can't say like, you know what, I'd rather not go on a deep sea adventure, I'm kind of afraid of water. If you've already signed up for Journey Under the Sea, too bad. <laughs> you don't get that option, right? And it's also interesting that they say this book is different from other books, because this is not the first time this has occurred. Uh, Hopscotch, which is a novel also famously difficult to summarize uh, by the author Julio Cortazar, uh, is a book that gives you many alternate ways of navigating the book. So this is the first page of Hopscotch in which he writes that in its own way, this book consists of many books, but two books above all. The first can be read in a normal fashion and ends with chapter 56, at the close of which there are three garish little stars which stand for the words of the end. Consequently, the reader may ignore what follows with a clean conscience. And having read the book, that's like halfway. Like there is a whole half of the book where he's like, don't worry about it, you don't need it. Or you can read it the second way, in which you begin at chapter 73, then follow the sequence indicated at the end of each chapter. In case of confusion or forgetfulness, you need only consult the following list. 73, one, two, 116, three, and so on and so forth. Um, my first time reading this book, I got a super, super old second, fifth hand copy that was literally falling apart at the spine. And as I read a chapter, the page would fall out. And so I actually ended up in this circumstance where I didn't get to go back and check because this book was just dissolving in my hands, which I don't think was Cortazar's intention, but also uh, informed my read, right? Um, so all that to say, this kind of non-linearity is not new to hypertext. It's things that people were experimenting with before hypertext existed. But when hypertext showed up, experimental authors thought, oh, wow, this is what we've been waiting for. We're never going to read books the same way. Poetry will never be the same. We have hypertext now. It changes everything. Well, sort of. Um, but in 1997 um, was really the heyday of hypertext literature as this really exciting new field. And the poet Stephanie Strickland in 1997 gave a talk called Poetry in the Electronic Environment who says, in general, I think one could say about contemporary hypertext poetry that the changes reside in how to structure and divide text and how to accommodate the powerful set of co-players the text has acquired that make for on-screen reading experiences both more radically individual and more adventurous than page reading. So again, radically individual, flip right back to Journey Under the Sea, you and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. It's, you know, it's exciting, but it's been said before. Um, but I'm really interested in what Strickland in even 1997 is saying, defining the reader as a co-player. Instead of reading a book, you are co-playing the book. Um, and so, uh, just briefly, she goes on to say that the main function of hypertext poetry and I would say hypertext literature in general at this time 
is based in pleasure of discovery. So the thing is, as you read a text, like this is one of her poems, one of her early hypertext poems, uh, as you read through this, right, you can, you can read it top to bottom. But rather than just go to page two, you have the options of clicking on any of these colored texts, and those bring you to different pages, and those pages bring you to different pages, and you are discovering and exploring your way through the poem. Um, and this came up often. Suddenly, there, this was an art form that proliferated in the 90s. Um, one of, the th one of the texts that's generally acknowledged as sort of the first significant or canonical hypertext fiction is this uh, story by uh, Michael Joyce called Afternoon, A Story. This is the pamphlet to the floppy disk that it was stored on. You had to load it into your Macintosh. Uh, and you had a, an instruction manual that guided you through how to read this new program that is just this story. And um, I'm really interested in how these things are presented to readers at the time. So if you look at the cover of this, it says that Michael Joyce's Afternoon is a pioneering work of literature, a serious exploration of a new hypertextual medium. It is neither a game nor a puzzle. So a real line in the sand. You're not playing a game. You're reading a story that you happen to click on and navigate and explore, but it's not a game. It's not a puzzle. Um, and important to consider in the 90s, video gaming, computer gaming was not as ubiquitous as we think of it today, right? Like there's a Sonic the Hedgehog movie coming out soon. In the 90s, that was not like the thing. Um, but so some examples of what it would look like if you wanted to read Afternoon a Story, the floppy disk, which you might realize recognize as the save button from your computer. Um, this, is the, this is one version of it. There's a CD-ROM, the 10th edition. It now is primarily distributed through what already seems dated, USB sticks. You can order a USB stick of the story, plug it in your computer, and um, it's much easier to find images of the container than it is to find images of the story itself. I actually had a lot of difficulty finding screenshots of the story, which is why I'm showing you the kind of static floppy disk here. So in the 90s, we have all of these experimental authors, experimental poets who are saying, okay, this is the future, this is the now, we're changing literature forever. <clears throat> and um, as this kind of tends to happen with interdisciplinary writers, uh, the people on the other side of the discipline said, well, hold on a second. You're using words kind of loosely here. So Eric Zimmerman, early game designer, game scholar, uh, came out with this article that was directly arguing with the poet Susan Strickland, or Stephanie Strickland, which he called Against Hypertext. So this is in 2000, where he basically took issue with a lot of this revolutionary language that poets and writers were associating with hypertext. Um, because it was really common to see people just effusively going, this changes everything. We're living the story now. We're exploring the story now. And he says that the distinguishing characteristic of the various forms Strickland includes under the banner of hypertext has nothing to do with digital technology. Instead, I would assert that the key, future, the key feature is the participatory nature of the reader slash writer slash player slash audience's experience embodied in that slippery term, interactivity. 
So what he's saying is that it's not so much that you're reading on a computer, it's not so much that you're clicking, it's that what seems to be important is that there is interaction as a concept. And he goes on to define these four different ways we interact with a text, none of which necessarily mean we're using a computer. One is interpretive interactivity, which the shorthand version is uh, you read a book, you have an experience with it uh, in your brain, <laughs> you come back to it again, you have a different experience with it in your brain, you're interacting with the text in your brain, right? The second is utilitarian interactivity, which is uh, literally having to navigate a text, you go to the index, you look for the page, you follow that page to get to the page you're looking for, you are in a utilitarian way navigating that book, right? And all the things that are part of that physical object, such as, is it a heavy book? Are you taking infinite jest to the coffee shop? Well, you've got both an arm workout and you're gonna look kind of insufferable. Um, the third option is, and this is what he associates most closely with what Strickland's talking with hypertext, is explicit participation with a text. So in the obvious sense of the word, you are making choices that affect what you are experiencing. But again, he does not say that this is required of digital technology. Those of you who are in my creative writing workshop, we played a game kind of recently called uh, The Exquisite Corpse, which is a surrealist language game. I'll have an example to show you in just a second, but it has existed long before computers existed. It continues to this day, and it is a way of rearranging and directly interacting with a text. And I'll show you an example in just a minute. And then four, macro interactivity, cultural interaction. This is fan fiction and a lot of other things, right? You read a text, you interact with that text by incorporating that into new worlds, new na narrative things. And then we're gonna get into actual games in just a second, but there's two more really important things to think about that come from Zimmerman here, which is that all of this interactivity happens within two different types of structure. One is content-based or embedded structure. And what he means by that is content-based structure means everything you interact with is already predetermined and already exists. So when you play a choose-your-own-adventure game or read a choose-your-own-adventure book, right, you can go to page four, you can go to page six, but if there's 72 pages, you can't go to page 73. Uh, there is no new, and every time you play it, you are trapped within the same language that has always been there and will always be there, right? So you may find new ways through it, but a lot of times this is why some of these concepts feel kind of old, because you're sort of just trapped in the words that will always be there. If you've played any kind of uh, older RPG game, when you go to talk to someone, they're like, have you been to the inn? And you're like, well, that was a nice conversation. What else do you have to say? And they go, have you been to the inn? Same kind of tension, right? that there's a limitation of content there. But the other form, the other system of interaction is systems-based or emergent structure. And this is a kind of structure where something new comes out of the system of rules that the language is occurring in. And this is where programming comes into the mix. So uh, it'd be easier just to show you some examples, one of which, I'll get out of this for a second, is, uh, a 2011 uh, hypertext poetry experiment um, by the poet Jenna Osman. 
titled The Periodic Table as Assembled by Dr. Zhivago Occultist. So to show you this as an example real quick, here we are, you can play it online. What this looks like in practice is that Jenna Osman has assembled a periodic table here. And sorry, in the back it might be a little small to read, but each one of these elements you can click on and it brings up a poem that Osmond has written specifically for that element. So this is for chlorine. Chlorine to clues, once a detective discovered you, followed you through your everyday routine, demanding much of you, perhaps burning your skin, nothing is private anymore. Medicine cabinets, laundry rooms, factory floors, breath. So as a chemist, what you can do in this periodic table of poetry is you can say, Chlorine, okay, I like you. I'm gonna add you to this reaction. Close that. You can see chlorine there is marked in red. Say then you also, you know, you uh, click over here to osmium, add osmium to the reaction. Click over here uh, to silver, add silver to the reaction. And uh, let's just, I forget what XE is, xenon. We'll throw xenon in there just at random. So. As you might be mixing chemicals together to create something new, what you can do here is pick one of these uh, procedures, such as dissolving, stirring, heating, diluting, or centrifuging these poems that are also elements to create something new based on the programming language that this runs on. So who here knows what a centrifuge is? Centrifuge, uh, basically you take some liquid, you spin it around really, really fast for a long period of time, and the different densities of those chemicals separate because they're different densities, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to centrifuge these four elements together, which, as an explanation, what that does is that it uh, reorders the text by word length with the shortest words at the top and the longest words at the bottom. So it takes all of the four poems, throws them all together, spins them around, and spits out something that looks like this. So the shortest words are here at the top, and as you scroll down, you see this ordering of the longest words that are all in that mishmash of those four poems all thrown together. Um, and there's all kinds of other things you can do here, like burning and evaporating, which have different functions there. Um, but so what galvanized Osman to do this is, uh, as, um, as I've met her, I am unsurprised by this, but she was, grumpy, she was a grumpy grad student reading hypertext and thought, I'm just getting stuck in all this content. People are still controlling what I'm doing. I want more control. And she says that reading things like Joyce's story or other hypertext at the time, she felt like she was, quote, shuffling a pre-made deck and it was confining. She was still subject to the authority of the writer, even if that writer wanted to make me feel like a producer. So here she uses that programming language to have something new come out of it rather than being fully limited to what's available to you. Um, and all that to say, I think that uh, this is something that has slipped away from a lot of writers at this point. Hypertext kind of had its moment and disappeared. And who is really taking up this charge now, I would say, are independent game developers who are still working in text-based mediums. Um, what has really contributed to that proliferation is a program called Twine, 
So some of you may be familiar with Twine. Twine is basically a really easy to use, user-friendly system for making text-based video games. Um, it's free to use. You can download it on almost any operating system. If you have any interest at all in writing contemporary text-based video games or hypertext literature, uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It looks like this, basically, which is just a quick glimpse at the back end. I'm not going to go into this because it will take up a lot of time. But these things are really easy to encounter now because of services like itch.io and other video game services on the internet. Whereas you used to have to just distribute the CD-ROM of the poem from person to person, you can now go straight to itch.io, play something in your browser, and the transmission of these things becomes much easier to do. Um, so all of this plays into what I'm interested in trying to figure out with my game, CentoQuest, which is how to actually develop system-based hypertext literature. Um, and I think it's rooted in uh, the ways in which we can already do this with poetry, even without a computer. So the Exquisite Corpse, for example, is a form in which a group of poets get together. Someone writes one line, folds a paper over. The next person writes a line, folds the paper over and over, and so forth. So each poet doesn't know what's come before, but at the end, you unroll the whole thing, and you have a new poem that none of you could have imagined. Um, we did this in my workshop. Here's one of them here. Those of you in the room may recognize some of your words on this page here. So you can see each one of those lines in a different script. Um, and this is something worth doing on your own. I think it's a, it's a fun experiment to do. Um, but the other one is a cento, and this is what kind of is the crux of the game that I've made, which is that uh, a cento is known as a, a patchwork poem. So it's a very, very old form. Basically involves writing a poem made up entirely of lines of poetry from previous poems written by other poets. You don't write any of the words yourself. You just look in various other poems, pull things you find interesting, and make a poem out of it. And for anyone who's ever written a cento, it can feel really game-like. You're grabbing a book, you're flipping through it, you're looking for something funny or interesting or deep, and then you're trying to match it to these other pieces. Um, so, Cento uh, Quest, uh, as, I, as I call it, is a game that tries to emulate that experience uh, for you. And um, walking the line between a content-based system and a, and a and a more of an emergent system. So uh, this is playable on itch.io, and I'll just see if I can zoom in a little bit. So when you open CentoQuest, you get a short introduction. tells you that you have the power to write a patchwork poem, also known as a cento. Uh, and the speaker invites you into their home to go through the process. Um, you can throw your coat wherever you want and uh, come on inside. So you enter a room. You enter a cozy living room lit by several lamps. The ceiling fan spins lazily. You get the sense that someone recently tidied up in here. So it's sort of touching on some previous text-based games if you ever played them. So with these, again, hypertext links, you have some options. You can uh, pick one of these five books to uh, open and look for text in. So say you want to start your cento with a poem by, by a line by Emily Dickinson. You select that. 
you get a description of what the book actually looks like, a hefty tome with a maroon outline of Dickinson's side profile, and you're given options for how to open the book. You can either open it as quickly as possible before you have time to think about it, or you can try to stop at the first folded page. When you select one of those, here you have the uh, actual page that falls on that page of the physical book, and you can choose any one of these lines to start your poem. So one of my favorite Emily Dickinson poems, The Bustle in, the, in a House, we can start right there. You add it to your poem. You go back to the living room. Now, under the surface of this, you can do lots of really cool things with twine, such as, as you play, you look at Emily Dickinson, and suddenly, after you've looked in there, a receipt sticks out of it. And uh, you open that up, and you can see here's a, someone has shoved a Best Buy receipt inside the Emily Dickinson poem as a, as a piece of, uh, as a bookmark. So um, you pick a line from that, and you add it to your poem. You go back to the living room. Maybe you take a look around, get a bigger description of the living room, and uh, you decide to head to the kitchen. And inside the kitchen, uh, you find uh, a recipe. And in the recipe, uh, there's a recipe for baking zucchini bread. And you can take you know, a line from that. And this can keep going and keep going until eventually you see the poem that you've written. The bustle in the house, restocking fee applies on select items, drain and squeeze out moisture with towel. Um, and you can go on to name your poem and print your poem. And, um, you know, I try to look at this critically. I know that it is somewhat like content focused, but I think that these underlying systems of logic create a bit of this emergence. Um, so this is sort of my, my way, my poetic way of like trying to untangle this problem, right? Of uh, how we can do hypertext, how we can make hypertext work for us as artists and as writers uh, in 2022. Um, so all of this to say, uh, I just like to make, you know, this is sort of a call to action if you find this interesting in any way, shape, or form. Um, this is a field that uh, is kind of slipping through the cracks. There's a lot of people making text-based video games, but there's not a lot of people doing what I would consider to be really exciting, really novel experiments in uh, hypertext game-based literary pieces. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I would say if, if programming, literature, poetry, video games, if you've got some sort of intersection there, which might be the case if you came to this talk, uh, download Twine tonight, play around with it, see what you can make. Um, I found it really, uh, really engrossing in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's the quick way through all of this. It's a much larger field. If you're interested, please feel free to look into it. I'm glad to also chat with you sometime about it. Um, but Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I'm happy to take questions if you have any. Um, thanks for being here.